players gather to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and the most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Veteran Explorer, Arclight Phoenix, Thalia Gu- I mean, Richard and Brigand, and many others. Battling head-to-head in brutal combat, they all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy and the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is brought to you by the minds behind Bashanra on YouTube, Thurban University, and TheEpicStorm.com. Hello, and welcome to episode 36 of the Eternal Glory podcast, The Mailbag Strikes Back. I'm Phil Gallagher, joined by Bryant Cook and Brian Kowal. How are you all doing tonight? Uh, Hanging in there. Doing okay, Phil. Doing okay. How are you? Not bad. Uh, been been a busy week, but I'm, I'm ready to just kind of hang out and chat magic for approximately two hours. That sounds great. All right, Brian, what have you been up to? Uh, well, my school finally got hit with a COVID outbreak. Um, we had se- uh, seven confirmed cases in our building last I heard. Um, we had two confirmed cases and they shut down two classrooms over it, like the classrooms where the cases were found. And then they let us all come in. That was on a Sunday night. They heard about that. They let us all come in on Monday. And then on Monday night, they were like, oh, wait, actually, nobody come in for the rest of the week. Uh, we're, we're getting more information. And now we're shut down through December 1st. So uh, the it has officially breached our walls in a uh, pandemic kind of way. So uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure I dodged it. But I am sick with something else. I think it's food poisoning. So uh, I'm doing this podcast on... Uh, basically no sleep and uh my my body is in a lot of pain (laughs) but the show must go on uh but the good news is i didn't have to call off work because i'm already working from home (laughs) (laughs) that's the spirit what a trooper yeah i dragged myself into my uh 7 30 a.m team meeting this morning and i just didn't even turn on my camera i was like curled up in the fetal position on my couch with my headphones in and just letting the meeting happen to me (laughs) So it, it's pretty cool that nobody had to know that all that was going on. Um, with all this free time, I've, I've got gotten a ton of housework done, just like stuff that's been sitting around for a while. Um, our The back deck I've mentioned that we worked on over the summer, uh, we're stringing curtains around it now. Uh, we got these sweet uh, curtain wires from Ikea that you just sort of like screw in on both ends then ratchet them together till they're tight. And that's that was super satisfying to install. Uh, we're going to hang uh, just like drop cloths from them as just like a rustic, uh, cheap type of curtain out there. Uh, we, we put up one prototype already. It looks pretty good. And then uh, we'll get the rest of them up pretty soon. Uh, I got some art back, uh, some stuff I got framed. Uh, I have a uh, I have two albums uh, by the Toasters, the, the New York City ska band. And I've, I saw them in 2019 and in 2020. And at each one, I bought a, a like vinyl record and had Buck sign it. 
And so I got my two Toasters albums framed. And then uh, a couple years ago as a birthday present, I got this uh, Pittsburgh and the Allegheny, an unusual happenstance. It's by a company called Alternate Histories, and it basically has Godzilla uh, like traipsing through downtown Pittsburgh in like an old timey like etched drawing with like a little plaque that says like, oh, the folly of man, the West Virginia coal miners were pressured to dig deeper and deeper and they awoken something and so like it, it's just this like fun thing but now it has a pretty bomb frame around it so because you mentioned a ska band uh i wasn't this didn't make the question list for this episode but i'm going to ask it someone on twitter asked brian how do you feel about the aquabats well you can tell your mom and tell your dad that they're super rad <laughs> now I, I did put that one in there uh the aquabats are great uh also, since we're talking about them, Yo Gabba Gabba is among the best children's TV shows there's ever been. In my line of work, I'm exposed to a lot of kids' TV, and I could genuinely sit and watch Yo Gabba Gabba with my students and not be upset at all. So at the beginning and, of COVID, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Uh, I, I was just going to say Yo Gabba Gabba was invented by the uh, singer from the Aquabats. That's the connection if folks didn't know that. So at the beginning of COVID, we started making pizza every Friday night because of the Aquabats, the song Pizza Day. And we just like casually like destroy the song as we make our pizza, uh, which is kind of cool. So I'm not going to lie. The third verse of Pizza Day kind of hits me like it. it's like the song is like goofy and fun. And then like the moral of the story is like, I miss that stability of school lunch. Like uh, I I. I wish I had something reliable like that in my life as an adult. And, and I feel that <laughs> like that. I, I'm not going to say I've teared up during the third verse of pizza day, but like <laughs> I haven't not done that either. <laughs> if it just hits right. If it's, if I'm just in the mood that day. So I only recently found this out. I, like I grew up a huge blink 182 fan. Like Enema of the State was probably the first CD that I ever played it so much as a CD that I, that I had to like burn it onto a like a burn disc so I could keep on listening to it because it was too scratched up. I didn't know that Travis Barker was originally in the Aquabats. Like that blew my yeah. mind. Yep. Yeah. That, that that definitely surprised me when I learned it too because I had been a Blink fan and an Aquabats fan like since I was a child. And at some point, I think I was in college, I learned that Travis Barker started in the Aquabats. And I was just like, what? But yeah, it's great. Oh, Aquabats are great. Scott is great. Uh, so what else have I been doing? Oh, Hearthstone just did a huge revamp of all their stuff. Like I've been pretty... Uh, medium minus on Hearthstone for the past year or so. Like I... I I haven't wanted to play the actual game in a long time, but they released like an auto chess battler called Battlegrounds like a year and a half ago. And I, I did like Battlegrounds for a while, but I was slowing down on that. And they just released a new game mode called Duels. They revamped their entire reward system. Uh, they they released a new set today. Like So I have a lot. Hearthstone has a lot of my attention right now for the first time in a while. Uh, I'm kind of enjoying that. Just wait until Arena's on mobile. I will never play Hearthstone again. <laughs> if I can draft uh, Magic the Gathering in a functional way on my phone, like Hearthstone is dead. Yeah, I guess I'll take this opportunity to step in and say what I've been up to. 
Um, so last week I did a collab with Brian and we played some Historic on Arena and that was fun and cool. And I thought Historic was a format that I might want to dabble in a little bit because it's a historic, sorry, it's an eternal format that I can't play on Magic Online. And, you know, if I'm locked out of that, it might be time to, like, dabble in Arena. So I downloaded Arena, decided I'd play some drafts, and then I drafted six times over the weekend, and I think I'm up to, like, nine drafts now. The ability to fire off drafts on Arena, just, like, one after the other, and just pick up and play whenever you want, is legitimately really cool. Yeah, one of the uh, clo closing thoughts in our video was I said, are you going to go download Arena now? And you were like, whoa, whoa, let's not get hasty. <laughs> but here we are. The yeah, I, is great. I had no intention on it. And then I sat there and thought about it for a couple of days. And I, I, and I, I was thinking like, man, I need to take breaks when I'm working from home. Like a best of one match is a really good break. Maybe I should do this. And then I realized that you can probably do a draft in half the time on Arena that you can on Magic Online because people can't sit there for five minutes in the tank. And that was very appealing. What now I'm I have learning... to figure out how to learn limited formats, which I've never really done. What I'm learning over these last few episodes is that Phil has a very addictive personality. First, couldn't give up Vintage. Now addicted to Arena. I'm loving it. Phil's growing. I, I, I think the, the real observation here is that magic the gathering rules and there's no reason to be a format specialist because they're all pretty great and just consume yeah. it however you can yeah i'm i'm the sort of player where when i have the fire for something like good god will i go and when i don't have the fire i'll do i'll do the bare minimum that's acceptable and i haven't had the fire for legacy much in the past year but right now i'm like hot damn vintage Hot damn limited. I've I've got things to learn in those formats, and I'm excited, and I'm making mistakes and losing because of it, and it's it's cool. Yeah, we had this conversation probably six months ago now, where uh, I I think it it was off camera where Phil was basically like, I'm pretty burnt out on legacy, but I'm a legacy streamer. What do I do? And Bri Bryant and I were both like, play other formats. <laughs> that it, it it's refreshing. Like I'll. If I'm not excited about Legacy, I'll record a couple modern videos, and then, like, Legacy's exciting again. Maybe the meta shifts over those two weeks or whatever, and then, like, all right, I'm back in. And at least the novelty is different. Like, the the deprivation satiation cycle of just doing the same thing over and over again. Like, all of that plays a role. Yeah, I'll definitely piggyback on what Brian said. Uh, playing other formats is amazing. However, I will admit, I just can't get into modern anymore. Like, I watch other people play it and, like, hangouts, and the format just seems to be force negation decks versus, like, Belcher, Oops decks versus Burn. Like, those are the three main decks in modern, and it just doesn't seem very appealing to me. I've been having a lot of fun playing Standard and Pioneer recently, but modern just seems gross. I have this, like beautiful format in my mind of birthing pod and splinter twin that i will never get back and i hold this on this pedestal of one of like the most fun magic formats that i've ever played and every time i think about modern i think about that and i go i don't know i don't know if it'll ever be as good as her again yeah so one of the questions in our mailbag coming down is uh what's our favorite deck we've ever played and you and i both picked modern decks so i mean we'll get to that in a little bit but 
there's a lot to be said about that. Yeah. Death and Taxes is apparently one of the best decks in Modern right now, though. So, like, maybe. Oh, baby. I heard it's okay in Legacy, Phil. It's it's pretty good there. I'm just not excited about it. Which is weird. I should be. The deck's really good right now. But, I don't know. Hogak, though. You just summed up my entire experience with Death and Taxes and Legacy. Like, that deck's pretty good. I'm just not excited about it. Yeah. Uh, I think that's really all that I've been up to. It's just been really nice. Like, a lot of the stress associated with the election is gone, and I've just been, like, hanging out, playing Lego games with my girlfriend, and playing a shit ton of Magic. Like, life's pretty good right now, all things considered. So, uh, Brian, what have you been doing? After the last episode, Brian recommended that I watch Queen's Gambit in the last episode. I think I watched the first one that night, and I was instantly hooked. And the next night, uh, my fiance and I watched the remaining seven episodes. So, like, like work ended, and then we sat on the couch and just watched the other seven. Like, I, I couldn't stop watching. I just wanted to watch more. Uh, the parallels it took to magic. Us three days, but yeah, we did that as well. The parallels to magic in it were insane. Uh, there was a funny interaction we had while watching. Uh, the main character gets paired against someone with a really uh, low elo. They're like, "Oh, well, what's your score?" And her opponent said, "Like, oh, like fifteen, twenty-six, or something." I'm like, "Oh, that's not very good." And uh, my fiance's reaction was like, "How would you know? Like, I don't know what elo is. I've been playing magic for some time." I remember Elo quite well. So I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah, I don't miss Elo at all. Wow. Uh, That was not a good system for Magic the Gathering, but we did live in it for a long time. I was actually looking at a a screenshot on my hard drive the other day uh, where it was 2011 that they got rid of Elo. And I took a screenshot at the very end because the only time that I ever hit this, I was above 1800 in all three major formats, uh, Constructed, Limited, and... I don't remember what the other one was, but I was above 1800 in all of them. And I was like very proud of that. It was, oh no, it was eternal standard and limited. That's what it was. Yeah. They broke eternal into its own uh, thing at some point. That was pretty close to the end. That didn't count for a long time. Uh, the Circa GP Boston, I think 2009, uh, I, my elo in limited was 2032 and you get three buys at 2050. So I went to the local shop. I was like, I'll just spike a draft real quick and get three buys for JP Boston. I lost in the first round of the draft. I tilt refired, lost in the first round of the second draft. And I was barely over two buys. I was like knocked all the way down to like 1970 or something from losing those two rounds. And I was like, fuck this system. I hate this. <laughs> yeah, it rewarded you for not playing Magic, which is just like not how things should be. Yeah, uh, uh, tons of these stories exist, but I, I definitely remember being at a PTQ once. And one one of the like mid-level pros of the era, like Ben Peebles Mundy or AJ Soccer or someone like, won the first two rounds of a PTQ, then dropped. They're like, I, I got what I needed. <laughs> they just needed a little ELO bump. Yeah, I mean, they were uh, very high. Like, uh, I forget the exact words, but like the bigger the event, the more ELO you got. Um, yeah, the K value. Yeah, K value. There we go. It's been so long. But uh, other than ELO, my computer died last week. 
I was talking to one of my IP, IT people at work and they're like, you know, you should really install an SSD into your Mac. It's not that difficult. I'll send you a video. And I installed the SSD correctly. But when I went to go reattach the computer, uh, one of the wires connecting the screen to the logic board disconnected. And I went to go reconnect it and shit just started sparking like all over. And I try, I attempted to turn it back on, but you could hear the fan getting super loud. So I shut it down. I decided I was going to let it sit for 20 minutes. And when I went back, it wouldn't even power on anymore. So uh, I had the iMac for nine years. It had a very good run, but I ended up getting a new one that I'm using to record tonight. So pretty happy with my purchase. And I mean, nine years out of any computer is pretty good, right? Yeah, that's solid. And uh, other than that, uh, I have some sad news. Grilling season's over, Brian. I put the grill away. Uh, yeah, we're doing oven-based pizzas now. The idea of grilling season is just baffles my mind. Because uh, my dad, growing up, he would be just bundled up out there grilling in the snow in January. Like, there was no grilling season. That man grilled year-round, 365 <laughs> days a year. And... Uh, my grill, like I have a cover for it and it's kind of under like a little ledge on the edge of my deck. Like it's outdoors. It's not like inside, which would be an insane place to have a grill. But like there is a little roof over it. It's pretty well covered. Uh, so I don't think I'm going to be bringing mine in, but we'll see how much I actually use it. So one thing that we've realized from, because at the start of COVID, we were grilling the pizzas and the crust was always extra crunchy. We've moved to doing it in the oven and I don't know if it's because we have a convection oven or not, but the crust is like kind of soft. So now we're considering like pre-cooking the crust a little bit and then putting everything on just so that it's a little more firm when we go to eat it. Uh, so now we have to like relearn how to cook pizza, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, that's a pretty common strat. Uh, were you not pre-cooking your uh, crust when you were grilling it too? No, because it was when you grill it, it becomes extra crunchy. So like you just didn't need to. Uh, the, the way I've grilled pizzas in the past is like you take the dough out there and you like grill both sides for a little while, like face down, flip it face up and then bring it in, put the toppings on it. That's the method I've used in the past. But, and uh, uh, that's my life update. Uh, co- <laughs> yeah. Cooking is cool. You can do whatever you want. Yeah. Great. Great time to learn. All right. Uh, All we right. do have one donation from Henrik Korkutz. Thank you, Henrik. We appreciate your support. We got a handful of feedback. Um, a lot of that is really going to be incorporated into the podcast episode itself, uh, but we do have two things we'll highlight from the beginning. Uh, the first one is from Phil on Reddit, who says, Woo, vintage! I've been getting into the format. Very fun. Buying a piece of power this year. Not sure I'll get the full five pieces for Doomsday, though. Maybe one day. It's a different kind of magic, though. Bizarre world. Bizarre world. Are you just reading your own comments now, Phil? No. <laughs> Is this you? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I I don't think I will ever own a paper vintage deck at this point. I downsized my collection considerably about two years ago when I needed to buy a car. Um, but like getting into the format online has been awesome, and I've been enjoying it so, so much. The gameplay's interesting. There's so much to learn, so many micro decisions that matter, um, and I'm really happy to see more people getting into it. 
I hope the success of Eternal Weekend gets Wizards to uh, make more of these God Account events for Vintage and Legacy so that we get new people interested. Yeah, I think that between Gen Con packs and Eternal Weekend, uh, it, it's been shown that these are these events are desirable. And running something like Eternal Weekend through the MTGO client, you don't need MTG Melee to work through it or anything. Like, It's just such a nice experience. And I, I hope they do. I hope Eternal Weekend remains in paper. Like, I hope they don't kill the real-life version. It, but I hope they add things like that to the schedule in the future. One thing that I've been finding interesting uh, since Eternal Weekend about Vintage is the format was like pretty slow moving, but over the last month or so, it's been very, very fast. And every week, it seems like there's a new top deck and everyone's like trying to beat the new top deck, which is a sign of a very healthy metagame. So Vintage is in a great spot right now. Okay, side side note, I'm going to play some Vintage on stream tomorrow night. What would you recommend playing? Because, like, the metagame has moved so quickly in the last week where it's like, Jeskai is good, Dredge is here, screw Jeskai, Shops is here, like, screw Dredge, and, and I, I have no idea where, like, what I sh- should be submitting right now. Have you tried the bug deck? I mean, I don't like it, but it would be up your alley. No, I, I haven't done that yet. It's on my list to try. I was going to try PO, but I'm kind of skeptical about that it's at not this very exact good right now. moment. I think I'm gonna wait a couple of weeks. Yeah. If shops is on top, PO is a good choice. But if people are still hogacking, then you're in trouble. And Jeskying. Oh God, Jeskai. Yeah. It's a rough time to to learn PO. All right. Um. So now we're on. T- oh wait, no, no, no. We have one more piece of feedback. At Bosch and Roll, as a monk in D and D, seems just right. From Vintage Pro Justin Gennari. Yep, I I I think I've said this in a a number of places here. I might have said it last episode too. I did not even think about like my monk token or monastery mentor when I made my character a monk in D and D. I just read all the the character types and what they're about, the classes, and I was like, oh, I, this appeals to me. And then later, all the magic players pointed out like, oh, you're a monk, obviously. <laughs> Like, well, that apparently I am drawn to that type of lifestyle. All right, um, let's go into some quick MTG updates. We kind of have sprinkled some of those in here already. So Brian and I did that historic D and T collab last week. That was a lot of fun, and the deck actually ended up putting up way more wins than I was expecting. Yeah, we went from bronze four. Uh, we started with at the bottom of the ladder, and we ended the the video in silver. So, we we were winning. Yeah, we 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 beat all the the poor children at the bottom of the ladder. <laughs> Aww. Um, but the the deck had more game than I was expecting. Like cards were good. That was a lot of fun. Um, I also did a vintage cube collab with the folks at Dad Nauseum. Um, that was that was a fun evening. Uh, other than that, I got 34th in the Vintage Showcase Challenge, which is not actually all that impressive because the event was small. Um, but I am having a lot of fun vintaging. Got super punished for being greedy as well. And, like, could have just killed my opponent by drawing any land to bring back some blood ghasts. 
and instead I was like, I'll activate this bazaar. They only have one card. It's probably not Rav Trap. It was Rav Trap. <laughs> but say Levy. All right, what about on your guys' end? Uh, so, Brian, I know you're doing Pro Tour testing right now. I am. I've been playing a lot of Arena. Uh, Standard's going pretty well. At one point, I was 13th ranked on Arena for Standard. I haven't started Historic yet. It's something that I need to do. Sort of waiting on Wizards to hand out the uh, God accounts, the unlocked accounts for Arena. Some uh, more notable streamers have been streaming with theirs, but I haven't received mine yet, which I think is sort of unfair. Uh, it's definitely an edge if you're in Rivals or MPL, where you are already have your account. But if you're not, you have to wait until the, uh, roughly a week before the PT starts, which seems kind of shady. Uh, especially when you have to turn in uh, your deck list uh, like several days before the actual event. Oof. Yeah. Uh, yeah how much would it set you back to just uh, get the deck you're thinking about? Probably like I'd probably put like 100 in and could probably build the deck for 100. I might just do that. Uh, yeah, if I mean, if you do well at the event, that will more than pay for itself. Yeah, I bought all of the standard deck that I'm playing for 50 bucks, and it's like performing very well, so it's pretty cheap. Uh, you're mostly just buying, buying packs and then using the wild cards, but a lot of the deck was commons and uncommons, so. Uh, I mentioned last week I'm still transferring over reports. There, I'm down to the final five. I just can't wait to be done with this. It's so tedious and I'm sick of doing it. Like, I've gotten to the point where I've done so many that I'm just, like, dreading each and every one that I do. So hopefully by the time uh, we record the next episode, I'll be done and then everyone can quit hearing me talk about it. Uh... I won a Pioneer Challenge with Lotus Combo. I haven't been doing very well in Vintage. Uh, I just don't think that Paradoxical Outcome is very good right now. But I'm working on a couple of ideas to maybe turn that around. I know that I want two basics. And Pyroblast is just very strong in the metagame right now. So I want to be playing red. But I might end up testing out Jeskai Peel with no black. Like right now my list is four color for you know the broken black cards. But... I think mana stability is so important right now. But anyway, I ended up playing the Pioneer Challenge because I scrubbed out of another Vintage Challenge. And I was like, eh, I guess I could play Pioneer with that new broken Lotus combo list that I was working on for the Pioneer Showcase. And I just crushed everything that didn't have a basic mountain in it. Like, if you weren't running a turn one one-drop mountain creature, I was just crushing you. So once the Lotus deck realizes or figures out how to beat red decks, I think that deck is just going to be unstoppable. And I was working on that list with a uh, winged Hussar known for playing vintage and legacy, a bizarre specialist. Um, we work well together. Ryan had a lot of good ideas. So props to Ryan giving Ryan a proper shout out. And for the Epic storm was kind of cool. Reed Duke was on the epic storm.com, a guest for infernal tutoring if you haven't checked that out, I would highly recommend going to do so. Reed is very, very intelligent, very good magic player, and actually had a better line than I did in one of the scenarios, so you're not going to want to miss that. Whew. Yeah, that that point is going to come up later. That's in yes, my notes is. for one of the questions that we were asked. So that it's, it's fun that you had Reed. Uh, so I have not been doing a whole lot of magic. Uh, like I said, I've been... Uh, playing Hearthstone and just catching up on TV and uh, playing Breath of the Wild, just all that sort of stuff. Uh, I did the collab with Phil. That's on uh, my channel. Um, I posted uh, 
a five zero last night with Rainbow Depths, uh, Tom Hep's Rainbow Depths deck. Uh, if you haven't seen that, it's a trip. He basically cut all of the forests out of Bug Depths, so he's a Im- you're immune to submerge, and replace them all with uh, City of Brass, Mana Confluence, and Gemstone Mine, and it's. <laughs> It's just hilarious how good that deck is. Uh, I had never played Depths before I recorded the video. Like I, I literally bought the the stages and the Depths. I didn't even own them on on Moto. Uh, I bought them right before I queued into the league and started recording. And I lost game two in round one, and then went two o two o two o two o over the next four uh, rounds to to five o the league. And the whole time I was just thinking, like, is this what we've been letting? negator 77 get away with all these years no wonder he's the trophy leader all the time this is easy like i've never played an easier league of legacy in my life and it was just like like most of my videos are uh, around two hours long this one was like one hour and i was like why why cast brainstorm ever again i could just do this yeah the depths leagues where depth just does its thing are so good and then you get paired like against a string of death and taxes, and it's just like, why does everything that they do interact with my combo? <laughs> Fuck. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like the the one opponent who got a game off me, they were on Maverick, and in game one they had a turn one zenith for zero, and I was like, please be elves, please be elves, please be elves. But then I inquisitioned them, and I was like, damn it, it's Maverick. But still managed to to cheese past them. But that's all I've been really up to. I've done a couple Kaladesh drafts. Uh, I'm not super motivated, which I know I'm going to regret later because Arena does reward velocity uh, or like uh, consistency in showing up, clearing your quests, and like drafting the sets when they're live. Uh, that that's much better than trying to fill in blanks with your wild cards later. But uh, I'm just not super motivated to to draft a lot right now. But I'll probably dig deep before Kaladesh rotates out, make sure I have those cards. I do think that the format is really fun. Like, I think it's very interesting. Like, I'd be willing to chat about that off podcast because it's kind of, like, out there a little bit in terms of content, more so than normal. Um, But there's a lot of cool archetypes, and yeah, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, I drafted Kaladesh when it was the real set in real life. Uh, it's a pretty great draft format. I have a sealed box of Kaladesh in my my collection. Like I, I keep boxes of draft formats I think are great uh, for the future someday. And Kaladesh is in the pile. So, Well, it's not going to be I, worth I any, like anything. Everything that's good out of it is banned, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's probably true. <clears throat> Well, I, I guess it's time to transition into the actual topic of the night, which is uh, the mailbag. So we uh, we asked for all sorts of uh, just generic questions you have for the podcast that aren't really enough for an entire episode. Twitter, Discord, Facebook, all over the place. We got tons and tons of questions, more so than we could possibly answer on here. Um, but we're going to dig in and try to get to a handful of them tonight. I was I, w- I was going to come up with something clever to do for this bit. I don't really remember how like the the Blues Clues jingles go, but I know there's something about like getting the mail there. 
So we'll, we'll just Here's pretend the mail, we did it that. never fails. Makes me want to wag my tail. When it comes, I want to well, mail. Yeah, that's that's actually exactly what I was looking for. Yep, that's the song. <laughs> As I mentioned not long ago, I spent a lot of time around kids shows in my line of work. All right. Question one is from Hassar MTG. How important is winning the die roll these days? In Modern and Pioneer, it's all that matters. Uh, well, winning the die roll is an advantage in Magic the Gathering. That uh, Data have borne that out over basically all formats, over all the history of Magic. Um, I, I think that the, uh, the new card design philosophy of jamming planeswalkers and steamroll, uh, like snowballing advantage, uh, really favors the person on the play more than it has in the past and i think that in like the long term like i don't know if this is going to happen soon but i think that there's going to have to be some sort of acknowledgement in the rules uh to even this out a little bit in magic's future uh, like i don't think i think that it's all that matters is is kind of heavy-handed I, I don't believe that is true and there are decks you can play that will do better off like like having force of will in your deck compared to chalice of the void like you don't mind being on the player of the draw so much uh, when you're the force of will deck but being the chalice deck you really want that die roll so like there's things like that that matter but uh in a, a game like hearthstone the person on the draw starts with an extra card in their hand and they get a lotus petal so like there's there's just like and, and and the person on the play is still favored in Hearthstone. So like uh that there's a lot to try to figure out there and magic is still using the same system it was when it was born in 1993. So I I think there might be some space to explore there. So I'm with Brian in the fact that the 2019 to 2020 cards really emphasize being on the play and it rewards the snowballing effect that he described, but I'm going to change the question a tiny, tiny bit. And when we eventually get back to paper magic, whenever that happens, hopefully six months from now, whenever, uh, I really wish that wizards would make things automated when it comes to play draw. You can easily make this happen within, uh, they don't use DCI reporter anymore, but whatever people are using to, uh, generate pairings just because at some point, and I mean, it, it definitely already happens, but people cheat with the die roll. I've experienced it against me before where I use large dice and people don't even give them a full rotation. So they'll just pick them up and give like a half roll, uh, acknowledging that like, hey, if I put these two here and do a half roll, I'll get like a 10 or 11 or whatever. So people like it's a easy way to cheat that it's like hard to dispute because like, how are you going to prove that your opponent didn't try to give a full good roll or you know, like, how do you prove that to a judge? Like, if they just, there's no evidence of anything. So I think that it would just be good for Magic if they, like, removed another way of sketchiness from the game. Like, just make everything automated. It would be nice and clean. That's pretty much it. Yeah, I agree with that. Like, uh, chess tournaments, it is my understanding that they automate uh, who, like, they aggregate, like, who is goes first more or or, like, so it balances out like in an eight round tournament, you should go first four times like and the, the tournament software just tracks that for you. And uh, like that, 
that's just part of how that game works. And we haven't had this conversation since uh, March because there's no paper magic, but people still rolling high roll need to get with the times. Like, even odd that shit. Like, you you can't cheat with an even odd. Uh, like, if you want to get really, like, foolproof, have each person roll 1d6 and just call even or odd. There's no way to cheat that. Yeah. The only thing that I don't like about that is assuming that you're both using the same set of dice, that means both people have to touch them. And I just don't want someone else's slimy hand touching my dice. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Uh, I, I have become enraged in the past uh, when opponents just reach into my dice. Uh, or like I have my dice and, and my tokens and stuff like on my side of the table or like next to my deck. And they'll just like resolve a planeswalker then just reach into my shit and put a die on their card. And it's like, excuse you. <laughs> like, if you had asked, I would have happily provided. But also, it's just the full rub in. Like, oh, great, Jace resolved. Oh, great, there's taking my die to use it. <laughs> like, so, uh, yeah. Uh, I, I am looking forward to using, uh, like, COVID and uh, health concerns in the future to not let anyone use my stuff at the, at the gaming <laughs> table. Yeah, um, kind of back to the question on my end. I think that I, I agree with the whole 20, 2019, 2020 recent card design point 100%. But I also think that not every matchup is like super swung by the die roll. So to use a vintage exa example, you can be Hogak Vine on the play and create 12 plus power on turn one. And then your opponent goes Tabernacle Pass and you go oh shit, and the fact that you were on the play didn't actually matter all that much. And I think there's a lot of legacy fair matchups, uh, like take something like Death and Taxes versus Snow, where those games do drag on for such a long time that the die roll is not really the defining factor. So I think the combination of powerful things that you can do and average game length means that a lot of things aren't nearly as swung by the die roll in these older eternal formats as they are in some of the newer formats now that said on the play when you go arcanist and you have days backup like good luck yeah, that's the delver life all right next question from uh chronic delver what this is a two-parter uh, the first is, was there a time you consider the best era of Legacy? Same question for Vintage. And part two, Watsi is going to unban one card banned in the last last year? Uh, I think this question was supposed to say last 10 years. Uh, what card do you argue to bring back? Uh, so, so do we want to do part one, then part two, or just kind of have each person do both parts? Uh, let's, let's do part one first, and then okay. come back around. So... I personally, I, I I think that Legacy is pretty cool now. Like, I know there's a lot of hate for the 2019-2020 uh, uh, Haymaker-type cards, but I think that we are in a healthy metagame. It just might not look like the metagame of old that people wish that it was. And uh, it, as far as actually answering in the spirit of the question, I really like the tail end of the Deathrite Shaman era. 
uh, when uh, Grixis Delver was just the obvious best deck and uh, Red Stompy was one of the better ways to fight it and a real like hard metagame coalesced around those two decks and it was really exploitable to someone who wants to play a lot of basic lands. So, and that was me. Uh, so I, I did quite well at the end of that one. Um, I love a a hard metagame. Um, the the Invitational I won. There were there were two decks in that tournament. There was Death Shadow and Eldrazi Tron, and I played a deck that beat both. And I I was doing the same sort of thing with uh, Blue White Miracles at the end of the uh, Grixis Delver and uh, Moon Stompy era of Legacy. So I I love an exploitable metagame. Uh, so that that's my answer. Um, also on this subject, I think Brian's going to say basically the same thing where uh, thinking about like taking a trip down memory lane of like, wow, yeah, that was a fun format versus this is how legacy should be are totally different thoughts, different things. And and like I I don't want anyone to ever think anything I say about like, oh, I really liked playing uh, bug land still. In, in 2010 i don't want anyone to ever think that means i think legacy should be like that forever because i don't like cards are going to get printed formats are going to change and that's magic and I, I i think legacy is pretty great right now and i thought it was great in 2010 as well i don't know why i have to answer behind brian he's just stealing all of my answers uh i'll be honest i don't like these questions i think people get a little too caught up in the past and then what happens is like like Brian said, you'll be like, well, I like this metagame a lot. So then people will argue about this on Reddit or Twitter where we need to go back to pre-war of the spark. That was the best legacy format of all time. And I just don't think that's a productive way to think about magic because you're never going to get back to pre-war. You have to appreciate things when they're happening or you're just missing out on life, right? So like Brian said, I think the current legacy format's fine. Uh, is it perfect? No. Is it awful? No. It's just average. And sometimes that's okay too. Uh, the best thing you can do is just learn to adapt, change your play habits, and play patterns. Just, you know, go with the flow. Maybe learn a new archetype or learn a new skill. Uh, cards like Predict won't always be playable. I know, like, that's a card people love and they don't like to play Patterns of Oko. Well, you had your time to play Predict for years. Now it's the time for something different. Same thing with Cabal Therapy. Cabal, I love Cabal Therapy. That card's not playable anymore. Um, so you have to learn to play with new things. I've learned to play with Veil of Summer. Uh, you just have to adapt. And I guess I'll answer the question. Uh, like Brian, I also love the end of the Deathrite Shaman era. Uh, I think the Epic Storm was secretly one of the best decks in the format. Anthony Laverde and I crushed multiple events in a row. We were first and third in one of the Leaving a Legacy Opens. Four empty, four Cabal Therapy, four Probe was just disgusting. All right. Um, echoing kind of what the others have said, um, I think Legacy is great. Like, of all of the time that I've played Legacy, I would say that 90 plus percent of the time, I would characterize it as, like, the best format that I'm playing or highly enjoyable. The last year or so has been a lower point for me, but even within that, there have been some amazing moments. Like, playing with Luris decks, like, that gameplay was insane. It was so skill-testing. Like, sometimes you got, like, obliterated by your opponent's Luris, but in the games where, like, you both have Luris and, like, it's unchecked and you're, like, trying to figure out how to wiggle through and fight those small battles, 
Like, gameplay was super cool, and we saw the emergence of some decks that had not seen play in Legacy for, like, seven years. Like, actual, factual white weenie. And that was so cool. It's because everything got smaller. We saw, like, almost a <clears throat> renaissance of things that people loved. We saw Stifle come back and Spell Snare, Nibble Mongoose. Like, it just felt like old magic mixed with new magic. Sorry, Phil. I'm just, yeah. I, I also loved that format. Yeah, um, I I have a really hard time picking one era of Legacy that I just adore because so many different eras of Legacy have something that's so important to me. So when I first started playing Legacy, Mangara locking people was my life, and that was so fun. Like, just grinding out my opponent's lands one at a time and watching them trying to wiggle out. And that same Deathrite Shaman era that you two mentioned uh, was totally my jam. Um, but if I had to pick one, I would say the height of Miracles. I loved D&T versus Miracles matches so much. They were so skill-testing, and I was always trying to hunt Anurag down at paper tournaments and get paired against him, because, like, those matches were just my life. I think I had a little bit of Stockholm Syndrome, if I'm being completely honest. Like, I didn't think that they were ever going to ban top and that this was my life being miserable. And then once it was gone, it was like a giant weight off my soldiers, my my soldiers, my shoulders. Uh, I just couldn't believe that I could be that happy playing magic ever again. Uh, <laughs> at the time, I was like, oh, it doesn't need to be banned, I guess. And then once it was gone, I was like, oh, my, this is what life can feel like. Like, it was so rewarding. Oh, I was definitely the underdog in in those matches in many cases. Like, I, I won games because I knew what I was doing very well. I knew what my plan was and how to execute it. But, like, damn, Miracles was good. Yeah, I think we all got there at some point. Uh, I played Elves through that entire era. And, like, <clears throat> I got to a point where I felt favored against everyone except Joe Lissette. <laughs> and uh, that... Like, like Joe just understood the matchup slightly better than I did, but I understood it better than everyone else. And like, I got paired against Joe once and he like force of willed my turn to Wirewood symbiote on this basically empty board. And I was like, God damn it. I needed that. <laughs> and like, I, I don't think anyone else in the room would have made that play. And just like, uh, but I, I did think it was fun just like overcoming the monster, but I, I also agree after the fact that it's better that if there just isn't a monster. All right, so what card? All right, Watsy comes to us and says we have to unban one legacy card from the last 10 years. What is it? Uh, I'm going to say Zerda. Like, I'm not even convinced Zerda needs to be banned now, just even without the hypothetical situation. Like, the, the companion rule might have uh, set her back far enough. But... But that's my that's what I would say. I'm going to have an unpopular opinion because I think it would be a good deck that would be possibly tier one that could fight blue decks reasonably well. I think survival of the finish should be unbanned. Oh. It it actually is probably fine. There's so many more answers to it than there used to be. When like, it was banned, like Cage didn't exist, now. Surgical Extraction, Rest in Peace. And people are like, well, you could put Gristlebrand into play on turn two. Yeah, Black Red Reanimator exists. Like, there's so many ways to cheat ridiculous things. Like, Survival of the Fittest wouldn't be the most broken thing in Magic. I don't know. I think it's fine. Yeah, it would I be good. I disagree, but I'm not going to get into it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Mine would be Luris. 
Like, I would really love to see if that card is still good enough to see play and what it would do without the companion rule. Or, well, I guess it still exists, but, like, come on. Three mana. Um, I, I would love to see that card seeing play in fair decks. Yeah, I think it would be pretty interesting because uh, Pioneer and Modern are both uh, have Luris in them still, and there's still uh, tier one decks that use Luris even with the three mana cost. And uh, I would be interested to see if that makes it a reasonable legacy card or not. All right, our next question. How do you weigh the risk versus reward of a risky mana base? For reference, Death's Shadow tends to be frowned upon when splashing, while Blue-Red X Delver decks often do not care. Where is that line? And this comes from Jordan Woosley. Uh, well, I start all of my lists with six to eight basic lands, so you're asking the wrong person there. Uh, I, I just, I choose not to play that game. I am on the opposite side of that fence. Have you ever looked at the Epics for Mana Base? It's pretty awful. Tiger King. Yeah. Um, so I am probably the most conservative Death and Taxes pilot when it comes to my my mana base. So I see many, many Death and Taxes pilots shoving in like three Caracas, two-ish Horizon Canopy lands, and maybe, like, Amishra's Factory on top of that. And I'm over here running as many basic planes as I possibly can. I really like the stability of being able to cast my cards consistently, and every time you play, like, a non-basic land, that's a chance that Blood Moon, Back to Basics, Wasteland, or something like that just gets you. So I, I tend to err on the side of being more conservative, so that I can just cast my spells and have a better chance of winning the game via play skill. Every time you just lose one to a wasteland, it's just like, well, all right. All right. Next question is from one Jarvis U. Suppose you had to the pick real Tiger King. Exactly. All hail Jarvis. Suppose you had to pick exactly one person to play three made up formats on the fly for the survival of the earth. Who would you pick and why? This is the question I put the most thought into. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. And uh, I came up with Gabriel Nassif. Uh, I There's a lot of amazing deck builders in Magic's history, but they aren't all amazing players. Um, like my first thought for coming up with a, like solving a format on the fly was Patrick Chapin. But like, he's been so good at building decks for so long and I mean, he's a Hall of Famer. He's like a very real Magic player, don't get me wrong. But like, he's not like a Luis or a Paulo who just shows up and crushes everything. And Nassif is a like a top five all-time player. And I believe he's in the camp of uh, like a top 10 deck builder. So I, I, I think that Nassif would be my choice. So I will say this about Chapin. He was the first person to recognize how broken Gurmag Angler was while on the coverage of that Pro Tour, the commentary was literally laughing at him for playing it. Like, yeah, he, he is a an actual factual uh, magic theory genius. So for my answer for this question would probably be the Duke. Uh, I think that Reed is both a great deck builder and player, but watching Reed play, Reed's very conservative and always takes like a play that 
necessarily won't win him the game, but also won't lose him to play because he can usually find a way of winning later. Uh, I don't know if that's how Reed would describe his play, but that's how I've watched some of the way that Reed will play black-green decks in Modern. Uh, so if the survival of Earth was on the line, I'd probably want someone making conservative plays to make sure we all don't die. Man, I was going to do a joke answer, but now that you've like brought up good guy Reed Duke, I, I just like totally agree with that. That's That's a good answer. But I'm still going to give my joke answer. I was going to say put it up to a tr- Twitter poll. Earth's had a good run. Fair enough. All right. The next question here comes from Monolith MTG. Is the gap between Vintage and Legacy getting bigger or smaller due to powerful new cards getting printed? Uh, Brian, do you want to answer first? Because we have the same answer again. (laughs) Uh, Let me look at what I put. Uh, the core of Vintage is so different that the similarities don't outweigh the differences. I will say this, though. With the 2019 cards and 2020 cards being printed, there used to be a really big gap between workshop-level power decks and everything else. Like, workshops used to be head and shoulders above everything else. Or, to joke about what I said earlier, head and soldiers above everything else. And with the power creep of everything else, blue decks have actually just become better than shop decks, which is probably great for the health of vintage for a long time i was on the fence where workshop probably needed to be restricted i don't think that's the case anymore i don't even know that the shop stacks are like always going to be amazing like it kind of seems to me like shops is the like pick your weekend for it deck and if you pick right it's so good right now yeah but for the last five years it was the best deck hands down not even close I, I remember that, yeah. Phyrexian yeah, Metamorph that, is a hell of a drug. Uh, five years is also probably a, short. a pretty generous <laughs> number. It, it, it Since they printed Lodestone Golem, uh, whenever that happened, what was that, like 2010? Like 2011? Like it, it's, yeah. it's been close to 10 years, and they... The, the running joke was that they're just going to have to restrict every artifact because they re- refuse to restrict Workshop itself, and... If you look at the vintage restricted list, there are some embarrassing cards on there just because they're <laughs> artifacts. And the the thing that turned shops into a reasonable part of the metagame was Paradoxical Outcome. Like, specifically that deck, that card. Like, having a blue deck that can play blue control and also just combo kill you out of nowhere, and it plays maximum fast mana to get ahead of shops' spheres. Like, that that's what really put shops back into it. A reasonable place. The blue deck was also Though rewarded for playing Purple's recalls. Yeah. Yep. Uh, you you can ritual with it if your opponent isn't on shops. Build storm. So yeah, that that was a good place to be. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm just gonna uh, echo what Bryant said. Like the though, like Oko is a common win condition in Legacy and Vintage. The the route that you get to the Oko in play is still just dramatically different like uh moxin and ancestral recall and gush and like all of that sort of stuff around the oko is it's a totally different thing than like astrolabe and ponder and brainstorm so like i i don't think that the formats are getting any closer together even if they even if the the end game looks similar some of the time uh the what's actually happening in the format is totally different yeah um I'm going to frame my whole comment around that Oko, actually. 
So if an Oko comes down in a fair matchup in Legacy, it dominates that game, and the rest of the game is just 100% focused around that card. If an Oko comes down in Vintage, you're like, oh, okay, they have a Planeswalker, and you can often just do your thing and force through, or just like Pyroblast is so common, uh, even sometimes as a main deck card in that format, that it's, it's not that big of a deal. So even though many of the same cards are seeing play in the two formats, the impact that they have on games and how they're used uh, often just feel drastically different. All right, um, the next comment is from Lord Darkview, who asks, how do you get an unpopular idea through the filter bubble to get people to take it seriously? Uh, well, you, you put up or shut up. Uh, build the deck, tune it, win some tournaments, get the list out there, and make people see it. Um, I, I think that the entire uh, circle jerk of like arguing with people whether something is good or bad is a waste of time in a game where you can prove it. Uh, you, you can just step up to the line and show if it's good or not. Uh, I think the same thing about people who are saying like, who think something is bad, like then, then brew something that's better, brew something that beats it. Like uh, the whole, just, just talking about whether something is good or bad. It, it is just wasted time to me. Oh, I'm similar to Brian once again. Put up results. Like people don't care how good an idea is until it shows that it can be shows that it can work and be tested more. Uh, props to people like Daniel Nunes or Nunez. I think is a Nunes that plays Legacy Slivers. Like it's so easy to look at Legacy Slivers as a meme. Daniel for the last three years has been crushing with Slivers, and I've seen more people than Daniel just. Uh, like winning with slivers or Eddie Zamora with humans. Like it's so easy to look at humans as like, oh, they poured it in a, a budget modern deck. No, humans is a legit thing. And Eddie put up results to get some people to believe. And now there's a huge player base. So put your money where your mouth is, like Brian said, you know, just go out there and do it. You know, F the haters. Yeah, you kind of have two choices. The one you don't have the, cho the choice over. You can get lucky and spike an event, and then people might listen to you because your deck list is out there. The other is just grind until it works. And like a lot of the people who are kind of like the pilot for their fringe archetype are doing just that. You know, they might be playing two or three leagues a day on average or something like that, and like really refining their deck and putting the the work in. And if you really want to make a change in an archetype, you know that's what you need to be doing. You have to overcome, like, the hive mind and the echo chamber and just the general process of just, like, grabbing the most recent list off of Goldfish or MTG Top 8. So if you want to fight that, like, get in there, get your deck lists in there, and then, like, maybe you're a more meaningful part of the conversation. I actually think, that, like, the hive mind mentality of Legacy is actually, like, kind of bad for the format to some extent, just because of how small the oh, format yeah. is, where... For example, if you go back and look at the one ch legacy challenge about a year ago where everyone played Belcher, uh, because the format's so small, a certain number of players can dictate what the metagame looks like. I want to say it was like Julian, John Ryan, and a couple other people all played Bomberman uh, for one weekend. It was, it was just like five people decided to all play Bomberman at the same time, and then it spiked on Goldfish for multiple weeks. 
uh, just because five people all decided to play Bomberman one week. Uh, it's not necessarily healthy if a certain number of people can just influence the metagame. Yeah, we could we could do a whole tinfoil hat episode there. Um, there are also some uh, weird things that occurred on Reddit with people trying to influence the format through fake accounts on there, uh, specifically regarding like banning of cards. Ah, uh, um, yes, I remember but, that. But like, with a with a format that's so small, and with so many people, or sorry, with so few people, like really, really pushing hard to do things in the format. Like, really weird things can happen sometimes because of an individual. I thought you were going the pirate stompy direction with this, and then you went the band direction. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that... <laughs> Brian, do you want to briefly summarize that story for anyone who's not familiar with it? Because that's a good one. Uh, a legacy hive mind all decided to meme on the format and spread the word that there was a new stompy deck, pirate stompy, that was dominating the format, but it wouldn't ever get published because everyone agreed to 4-0 drop before the list got published. So it got to the point where people were making up lists and playing them in leagues, and but they would always drop before anyone could do anything. So people were surgicaling, like main deck surgicals, just to try to look at other, other people's lists and became this giant conspiracy theory before Bob Huang uh, let the cat out of the bag in one of his articles that it was all just a meme. But by that point, TCG player had been bought out of like every pirate from Mercadian mass block. Um, Rashad and cut person. The, the five mana bird one were like $40. Um, they like actually d impacted the magic card market. Like it was a good meme. Uh, reminded me a lot of the thunder bluff meme from MTG, the source uh, shout outs to a Nabo grunt, but yeah. Yeah. I went to the local store. Like when the, the rumblings of pirate stompy started happening and the local store I went to, uh, they are not known for having good prices on anything. And they always try to say like, we have tomorrow's price, which it means like, we're going to charge you what we think it might spike to in case it does spike. So we don't feel bad, uh, which is it's bad business. Uh, and like I, I went there, but they, they do tend to have everything in stock, like every magic card. So I went there and I was like, Here's the list of like things. And it was all the like stupid pirates. And I was like, just in case, like if I can get this for like 50 bucks or whatever, just just in case it's real, that's not a huge deal to me. And uh, they 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 ran the list. They came back. They're like, that'll be two hundred and eighty dollars. And I was like, you guys are idiots. <laughs> no <laughs> chance. This is probably a joke and I want no part of it. And like they could have sold those. Mercadian mass bulk rares for 50 bucks but instead they tried to gouge me for like hundreds and i'm sure they still have them you love to hear it does it pay to be a deck specialist anymore always yeah uh like not having to figure everything out on the fly is going to save you so much time so much anguish so much uh mental exertion over the course of a a tournament like that that Rainbow Depths League that I, I dropped last night, uh, that I spend a lot of time just looking at the like, I, I so my hand has like two lands, a Lotus Petal, an Elvish Spirit Guide, and a Crop Rotation, and I'm just like, uh, can I make Merit Lage? <laughs> and I'm just like staring at it, like, uh, um, one, two, three, minus one, two. Um, I need 
two when it's over. Oh shit, what if I what if I get Urborg? And like all Tom Hep isn't doing that anymore. Like he he just sees them and knows that he can make it or not. And like that is worth a lot. Uh but that said, you do need some range. Uh like uh not to pick on the DNT community, but the space between when Oka was printed and when Skyclave Apparition was printed, those folks, they didn't have a good time. And they could continue to try to force their deck, which was uh, just objectively not very good, or they could step out and try to learn something else uh, as a backup plan. But uh, as the metagame does, as card printings do, DNT is back and it pays to be a specialist again. So. Yes, there, there's a lot of value of just being very good at something, but don't be a one-trick pony. I was tagged on Twitter uh, in an Emma Handy tweet. Uh, the person was like, being a deck specialist isn't a bad thing. Look at Bryant Cook. They have a great career. And I don't like that. Uh, I don't think of my, like, I am a deck specialist, I guess. Like, I play the Epic Storm all the time. But I've also been playing Magic for almost 20 years. And I've played a lot of different decks in that time. Uh, multiple formats and everything. I understand that I get pigeonholed as a deck specialist. That's fine. But I've played mono red. Like my first time ever facing Brian, I was running Zoo in the top four of a, a modern challenge. Uh, I I've played tons of different decks, and the best thing that you can do is expand your knowledge of different archetypes and decks. So when you are playing your specialty, you know what your opponent's trying to do. And you know the ins and outs of everything. Because if you only know your deck the best, you're never going to get the maximum percentage. You want to know everything about the game. And because, like, even just Legacy, like, if you're a Death and, Tass- Death and Taxes specialist, it still helps to go play Historic or Pioneer or other things. Because you'll know obscure things from those formats that can then help you in Legacy later. So just go out there and play different things. That's the best advice I can give. I want to I want to co-sign that, um, and specifically, I want to talk about why I'm getting into Arena right now. Um, it's secretly Brian's fault, but probably for a different reason than what he thinks. So when we were doing our collab together, um, we were talking through lines together, and a lot of times I was spotting things and taking approaches differently than what he would have done, and like some things were very obvious to me that weren't obvious to him. And I keep thinking back to advice that I hear from people all the time. And it, it's just the same advice. If you want to get better at magic, play more limited. And I thought, like, okay, what, what skills can I pick up from doing that that I can apply to other formats? And that's why I'm grinding limited right now. I'm playing so much cube and, and so much draft right now to just kind of improve some of my basic fundamental skills and try to bring that back to other formats. So... I think being a deck specialist is, is great. It's done wonderful things um, for many, many people, but don't don't let it be the only thing that you do all of the time. Don't don't force yourself, you know, in like some sort of weird Stockholm syndrome situation to just keep jamming your deck when it's not the time to do it. I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but Phil just uh, brought it up. But I missed the top eight of uh, Star City Legacy Open years ago because i was bad at combat math and after that i said never again and i went and played a ton of limited i was like i will never be bad at combat math ever again and that's the best thing that you can do it's just like if you have a weakness figure out what you can do to improve it and then go do that 
Yeah, I I don't I don't think I've told this story on the cast before. Maybe I have, but I was uh watch at an eternal extravaganza event between rounds. I, I walked up to a table and there was like a big crowd formed and it was uh Nicholas Dijon versus Roland Chang, two known uh chop shops experts. And this was when like Ravager shops first broke and combat math first became super relevant in vintage. And these are two of the best shops players in the world. And they had like 10 people watching them. And I walked up and they were just in this board stall. Like nobody was making any moves in either direction. And I immediately noticed that Nicholas had an attack that is would plague wind Roland and push for damage at the same time. And he just wasn't making it because he wasn't like, like it, he had like, it was like a, a four, four and a three, three and a two, one versus like four, two, twos or something. And it was like, and Roland was at three life and it's like, he can't block the two one to get a clean trade. You can wipe this whole board, put him to one, like, and this game is over, but they, they just like, neither of them saw it for a long time. And none of the 10 people standing around them saw it either. And it was just like, you guys need to draft. <laughs> I am also getting much faster at combat math. Like, I have jammed so many drafts over the weekend, and I can already notice, like, my ability to read the board is improving already. And I play a stupid creature deck that does combat math all the time. But I'm not used to combat math of, like, a 2-2, a 4-3, a 1-2 flyer, and potential combat tricks that give between plus 1 and plus 3 damage, and... Now I'm seeing the Matrix a little better. Yeah, definitely. All right. Uh, I think this is the Astrolabe question now. Do you think Astrolabe is unhealthy because Wasteland and Port effectively don't matter to the three to five color greed piles that run it? And this one is from the Innistrad Revenue Service. I I think that Astrolabe is fine. Um, I I kind of wish it was not printed, but I don't think it's remotely ban worthy, and I think it's it's fine. Um, like, I still lose games to Port and Wasteland, and I'm the one playing you know six to eight basic lands in my deck. Uh, sometimes it happens. Also, a card like Astrolabe opens up your mana base to Thoughtseize and Spell Pierce, which is like brutal. Uh, like if your Astrolabe ever gets countered or destroyed or turned off by a Karn or an Allrod, or you just don't draw one, that deck is bad. So it, it's not free. Uh, it, it's not Leyline of Astrolabe. Like, you really do have to draw and resolve the thing for it to, to go off. And I, I think it's a fine thing to exist in the form. All right, I'm, I'm just going to say it. Fuck Wasteland. Uh... Your cards don't deserve to be playable. Like, one, Wasteland is perfectly fine. The best deck in the format runs four of it. But I think that leg legacy players in particular feel entitled for their cards to be playable. And that's just not the way things should be. Uh, sorry, but, like, Wasteland doesn't get to be the top a top five card in the format forever. Like, it's allowed to be a top eight. Uh, like, the card's perfectly acceptable. Like, same thing goes for, like, Duress. Like, people are like, well, Legacy's best when Duress is good. That's not true. Uh, dress sucks. Like it had its time in the sun. Let it go. Uh, same thing with like predict and AK and miracles. Like there's new kids on the block, you know, like cards had had their time. I'm done. I'm ranting. Yeah. I don't, I don't love Astrolabe's design. If it no longer existed, I'd be cool with that. But the card's not 
fan-worthy. It, it does a thing. The thing has a real cost. When you tap out for an astrolabe and your opponent casts Dark Ritual, like, awkward. So, like, I don't, I don't love some of the gameplay behind some of the astrolabe decks, but I don't think the card is truly problematic. Yeah, like, th- there's there's a, a cascade of power levels where, like, uh, at some point, Astrolabe is not too good for your format anymore. Like, Astrolabe is banned in Popper and Modern, and I think it's just right for Legacy. Like, Legacy is the, the baby bear's porridge here for Arkham's Astrolabe, and uh, that is what it is. I think uh, we're going on, like, four episodes in a row of you using that uh, that phrase. I love it. <laughs> I also love it. <laughs> would you say that that phrase is like baby bear's porridge? I would. Oh, I'm too deep. Too deep. I'm pulling out. The next like question. Like father bear's porridge. <laughs> All right, I'll read the question. Phil is gone. Um, <laughs> so this question is from Rain Voiland. Uh, how or what do you study to improve your knowledge? How has judge certification helped you as a player? What are the heuristics that seem to work best for you? To what methods do you attribute your skills? And who are your favorite theory writers? All right, so this is a, a thick question. Um, there's a lot going on here. So let's let's tackle the judge end first, because Brian and I can both speak to that. All right. Um, so obviously, like being forced to really understand the rules of the game, it matters a lot when you're playing the game (laughs) like it it does help to know it um there's a lot of great players out there who never were judges but really fundamentally understand the game uh but being a judge where you have to maintain your certification and pass tests and like you're constantly talking with other judges about policy changes and rules changes and stuff really keeps you sharp and uh that i've certainly found enough advantages over the years because I understood something that someone else didn't, or I just like made the stack dance in a way that I wanted to. It's also nice not to have to call a judge every time something is close. Uh, like, uh, like y- you just know how things work. And uh, like, I, I think I've told the story before, but like I, I've gotten so much information from opponents who call a judge. Like they, I had an opponent Vendillion click me once and my hand had natural order in it. And they immediately called a judge. And I knew that they were holding Parish. Like, the, the question they were asking that judge was, does Parish kill Progenitus? And I, I just, like, got that read for free because they weren't sure how the rules of the game work. And you get to skip that sort of thing when you, you just already know. Um, also, like, the perspective of how tournaments work, like, what's going on behind the scenes, um, how to interact with a judge is very important. Um like a lot of people end up falsely incriminating themselves by just like talking too much or saying the wrong thing or uh, getting caught in a lie because they thought it would help their case or something. And just knowing how to interact with tournament officials is very important. So when I first became a judge, I, I did it over the summer and I sat down and I just treated it like it was a class. Like, there were there's a whole bunch of resources online. There's practice tests you could take. I sat down. I, I studied layers. I studied rules and and things like that. And it did so much good for me understanding a lot of the fringe weird stuff 
that can happen in Legacy. And I can't reiterate enough how good that was for me. Is it something that every single player should do? You don't need to go so far as to become a judge, but if you understand some of the things that are going on behind the scenes a little bit better, especially when it comes to, like, parts of the turn, priority passes, layers, stuff like that, it will help you. You don't know when it will help you un until you've studied that stuff, and then all of a sudden you'll realize that you can do something at a weird time, or that there's this weird interaction with, like, Painter Servant and some clone effect or something like that, that, like, bails you out of a weird situation. So I might not be a judge, but I'm going to share what Brian talked about, about knowing the rules. So through playing Magic, you'll notice, like, let's say, for example, the end step and end of turn are two different things. Uh, well, the cleanup step, most importantly. Uh, so the cleanup step and end of turn. Because in paper, if you say move to cleanup, your opponent no longer gets to respond if they agree. So you'll discard a card. They'll go to cast like an end step, let's say factor fiction. You get to say, no, I've already discarded. Uh, like that's just how the rules work. Uh, to bring up a real example of this is I was playing in uh, Grand Prix Las Vegas for Legacy. And my opponent was on Black Red Reanimator. I put this in a tournament report too uh, at the time. They went Turmoline, Gristlebrand, draw 14 cards, put Sire of Insanity into play. And said, go to cleanup. I agreed. They discarded down to seven. And then uh, I went to go. I like slowly moved my hand towards my deck. Because I was like, I think that they missed their trigger. And I go to draw. They're like, you have to discard your hand. And I'm like, well, that's not how any of this goes. I'm going to call a judge. Judge comes over. We each give our story. Uh, my opponent clearly lied about it. Because they said that they discarded their entire hand at once. And I said, that's not what happened. Uh, the, they call another judge over. That judge asked the person. They then said that they discarded down to seven and then discarded the remaining hand. And then the head judge got involved. And my story remained consistent the entire time. My opponent's story changed three times between all the judges. So like Brian said, knowing the rules and, you know, just like telling the truth and like liars often like try to work an advantage through information, which will get caught by judges. Judges aren't dumb people. Um, you know, they can often find that stuff out. All right. Uh, should we move to a different part of the the question then? So how, yeah, how so, about... Go ahead. Uh, what do you do to improve your knowledge? Um, I get my hands dirty. Uh, I, I play matches and I tear them apart. Um, I let other people tear them apart. Um, a lot of the time I've seen someone like at a tournament, like they've just lost a really close game and their friend who was birding the match says like, oh, uh, three turns ago, why didn't you like make this attack? Uh, it it would have been free, like they were tapped out. And then the person just sort of goes like, oh, well, it, it wouldn't have mattered. And, and like they just blow it off. Like you, you got to listen to all of those sort of feedback uh Sometimes I, I know you're on tilt, you just lost a close match, or even more importantly, if you win a match, like if you win and your friend behind you says like, you could have won three turns ago, like you had like the deterministic loop and you just didn't go for it. It's like, oh, the correct answer to that is, oh, really? What did I miss? Like, where was it? it it's not didn't matter scoreboard. Like, that's just 
not not a good way to think about magic. Um, and if you were right in your play, like if your your friend is like, you missed the deterministic loop three turns ago, and you're like, I was playing around surgical extraction and extirpate. And, and like, I felt like I, I was going to win as long as I didn't walk into just even something I don't think they're going to have. Like, I, I, I could afford to play around it, so I did. Like, being able to explain your play or be open to hearing the better one. They're both valuable exchanges with other people. And uh, you really got to get in there and, and get dirty. Like if you watch any of my YouTube videos, I'm constantly just like, oh yeah, it would have been better if I did this. Like that that's, pro I probably say that more than anything else. Like I'll make a play and immediately explain why I could have done it slightly better. Yeah. Watch any content from a super high level player and they will constantly be talking about things that they could have done better. Like, um, I, I've watched some of both of your videos, and I know I do it in mine as well. All of the time, there's always these little tiny things you could have done better, and a lot of times they don't come to you until 10 or 15 seconds after you make the play. But the more, the more reps you have, the more you jam, the more you get people to work with you and help critique your, your matches and your play, the more of those things you're going to catch on your own. So I do a lot of Google Hangouts, or at this point they're Discord Hangouts, but, uh, and I surround myself by people that are better than me, and I don't want people that play combo, or, well, they can play combo, but, like, I don't need other Storm players telling me, like, Storm ideas. Like, I honestly get more information and more, like, deck building theory and magic theory from people that don't play Storm combo. Like, I'm more interested in those thoughts and ideas because it allows me to you know, like 5D chess my own brain a little bit and think in a way that I normally wouldn't think because I think a lot of Storm players tend to have similar mindsets and I want something that's just completely different so that way I can grow faster. Like, yeah, you can grow from listening to other players that play the same deck and you'll get there over time. Like you might grow a little bit at a time, but I'm more looking to make leaps. I know, like I can pick up the things that other Storm players would tell me on my own typically, but for example, Brian might know something about an archetype that I didn't think of, and now all of a sudden I know to play to that, and I'm more interested in that sort of information. It's it's really difficult to describe, but hopefully I conveyed it well. I don't know. Yeah, th there's a, a a local guy. His name's Adam, and I've teamed with him a few times at at trios events. And this dude knows every deck list that's ever been published. Like it's it's kind of insane. Like he he. The amount of time he must dedicate to studying deck lists would melt my brain. But, like, we were playing in a, a, a modern trios event uh, at a Star City, and I was like, there there was like a random turn where I felt like I was way ahead, and I was like, Adam, what could go wrong here? And he was like, there was a Japanese list that ran one post-mortem lunge. And I'm like, oh, good to know. And just like, I would never put in the work to know that. Maybe it doesn't even matter. But like, if I didn't ask, I would have never known that ever. And like, I, I just might have gotten blown out by postmortem lunch. So just uh, use the people around you. They have a different skill set than you do and smash them all together and everyone gets smarter. The next question. Well, hold on. There was more to this question. It was like questionzilla. Um, yeah, this is a Voltron of questions. Uh, so uh, I, I think I know where we are. Um, 
Uh, one of them was about heuristics that work best. Yeah. Um, honestly, that like there's some some core ones of like uh, know who's the beatdown, uh, always be clocking, um, the philosophy of fire, bolt the bird. Like there's some like things that stand the test of time that you should have in your your in your bag. But in general, I don't have a whole lot of uh, not nothing I could really explain <laughs> in. <laughs> this podcast format um like i i will try to see as many cards as i can in a turn i will try to see everything i'm going to see in a turn before i commit to anything else uh like like casting oko and then casting ponder is not something i'm likely to do i'm going to ponder first just like there's things like that that i i stick to pretty religiously but uh there's Magic is so complicated. There, there's not just like a, an easy heuristic that's gonna make anyone better at the game in this format. Just me talking about it on a podcast. So I've, I will say a, this. Oh, sorry, ahead. Phil. Uh, I did a tutoring session with someone that was a Delver player, and they, in their head, they were taught you preordain, you ponder, and then you brainstorm. That's how you do it. You always preordain, ponder, and then brainstorm. And we got to a point in the game where I said, I think we should brainstorm here because your hand is clunking and needs fixing. But the response was, well, I have a preordain and a ponder. I don't see why brainstorm here is correct. And I said, because your opponent's likely to play a haymaker next turn and you need both a land drop and an answer because like you're getting behind on board. And they go, no, I'll preordain. And they preordain and literally both the cards they needed were on top. And I know that's results-based thinking, but they ended up losing that game because they were playing a turn behind the rest of the game. And sometimes you need to get ahead, even though it's against the natural heuristic of what people tell you is typically the right play. Yeah. I did an entire episode of wizard school on my YouTube channel about ponder, preordain and brainstorm and when you want to use each of them and, uh, committing to a hierarchy is a mistake. So, yeah, definitely agree with that. Yeah. If I if I were to add one of my own, it's when your opponent makes a bad play, think about why they're doing it. Because a lot of times a play may look terrible and may objectively be wrong, but if you stop thinking there, you're actually missing out on information. Your opponent might be making that suboptimal play because it's the only way they could possibly win. Or they might be making that suboptimal play because they're not experienced in the matchup and, like, you can take that assumption moving forward. Like, don't just stop thinking about a bad play when it's made. Try to figure out what the opponent is thinking in making that play. And sometimes you might realize, oh, geez, the opponent is on a totally different level than me. I didn't realize that this thing could happen. Yeah, uh, Michael Jacob, I used to watch his stream uh, once in a while, and he always used to say, give your opponent the benefit of the doubt there is a like thinking breathing human being on the other side of those bad plays and like just try to figure out like if you know they're holding a four drop and they cast a three drop instead what are they doing with that other mana like i'm sure they didn't just decide to play off curve as a brain fart like is it spell pierce is it swords of plowshares like you gotta you gotta be thinking about that sort of stuff All right, and the last part of this monster question is, who are your favorite theory writers? Um, I mentioned Chapin already. He is uh, among the best. Uh, Sam Black 
has some pretty heavy stuff that he's put out and uh uh paulo vitor damodorosa is one of the best content creators in our game too um a lot of the time the best articles get the least clicks like uh, a lot of great writers have said uh the the works they're most proud of were poorly received and that's because a lot of people open up a an article, they scroll for a deck list, and then they close it if there isn't one. Like that's sort of what magic content has become, like deck lists and sideboard guides. And that's not gonna make you a better player. Uh like read that heady, long, uh like thick theory piece. That that's gonna help you more than this week's deck list will. To uh comment on what Brian was saying. I actually hate how a bunch of like article series have just become deckless dumps. Uh, I really don't like it. I wish that there was more theory articles or like just, I don't know, more like information based and less just like deckless and explaining card choices. Yeah. Mike Flores based his entire career off that, like the uh, swimming with sharks column he had on the mothership for a long time. He literally just took, it was like every Thursday or Friday, he took every deck that top aided a PTQ the previous week and just dumped it. And somehow that was a, a column that people liked. Like, ugh. Theory articles are hard to write. Like, so many of the articles that I've written have been like on like D&D theory and things like that. And I can tell you that a lot of times those articles that you can read in, you know, five minutes take eight to ten hours to write, edit, do all the hyperlinks for, and things of that nature. Like, a lot of work goes into that stuff. And there are much easier ways of producing content that are far faster and better received. For sure. Womp womp. Alright, Phil, what do you think about Yori and D&D? Alexander Vincent wants to know. Alright, um... At a glance, it seems like it makes good matchups better and bad matchups slightly worse. I did not like Yorian D&T pre-Skyclave. I didn't really think that was playable. There are Yorian bugs, uh, specifically with Containment Priest. If you blink Containment Priest and your other creatures, you get some of them back and not all of them. And no one knows why. Magic Online is aware they are trying to fix it. They have not succeeded yet, but it is it is on the plate of things that is going to get fixed, so be wary of that. Um, but as far as the current list, I haven't played it, so I can't give you good informed feedback on that list. Like, this, this is what I can give you, but I don't want to run my mouth off and say a bunch of things when I don't have first-hand experience with it. Hey, that's a throwback to our put up or shut up answer from a couple minutes ago. Like, Phil doesn't know if it's good or bad because he hasn't put the reps in, and thus he is not offering an opinion. So, great job, Phil. Yeah, and there are a lot of people who will yell things very, very loudly that they have never played, and they will, uh, they will say all sorts of things about it. Not trying to specifically call out one person here, but it's been very relevant in the DNT community recently. But all of the time, people will 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 shout things about, like, spoiler cards in particular that no one has ever played a game with. Like, give give it time, put in the reps. That's one thing that I'm very good about doing, is most of the time, if I think something's good, I test it. If I think something's bad, I'll test it so other people can see what it's like and learn from me. 
Yeah, like, speaking of spoilers, uh, like, a couple weeks ago when Commander Legend spoilers were coming out, that uh, that 3-2 that Mindslavers your opponent when they're searching the deck, uh, do either of you remember the name off the top? I don't. I know what card you're talking about, though. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Twitter exploded over that card. Like, this is the end of Legacy. Why would Wizards design this? I'm quitting Magic. Blah, 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 blah. And then... A day and a half later, Hullbreacher was previewed, and nobody said anything. And Hullbreacher is a significantly more scary card than that other one. <laughs> and that's just, like, what you're dealing with when you get into that, like, shouting without playing a single game, sort of. Like, it, you're going to miss big things, and you're going to get stuck on small things. I have a question for the two of you. Do you think that Echo Van should be banned? What? No. You would not believe if you go back and look at the Reddit thread of the spoiler for Echo of Aeons, people are like, I give it two weeks. There's no chance this card doesn't get banned. Uh, stuff like that. Like, it wasn't even like one person, it was half the legacy community on Reddit was like, It's literally just Time Twister. This card's going to be banned. Uh, there's two decks that play Echo of Aeons right now. Yeah, and it is for sure actually literally not Time Twister. Correct. I've taken six off yeah. it. I know. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, what's one card you wish was legacy playable? One that looks good, but fell a little short of actually being playable. Fuck you, Brian. I'm going to say Dark Ritual. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Dark Ritual and its associated decks have always been just a little not quite what I want them to be. Though I, I will acknowledge that the Epic Storm lately has been pretty impressive. Shoutouts to Alex McKinley. Top aided the Legacy Showcase and the Legacy Challenge this week. Proud of you, Alex. That's a hell of a run. Yeah, kid's good. And writes great articles, by the way. He's the only one on theepicsfirm.com that does a free-form article every month on a different topic. Different topic. He's a very good writer. I am not, so I don't do that shit. Uh... <laughs> My answer would be Crowstorm. I've wanted this to be a real card for years, ever since they put it into, is it uh, Unhinged? The one with the uh, the wrench? Unstable. Is that the one with the wrench? I think so. Whatever Crowstorm is in. I saw that, and like honestly, that's a legacy playable power level card that wouldn't be too good. Uh, basically, you just have a Storm Engine that you could cast through Gaddictigue, and it blocks Delver of Secrets. Uh, it's worse than Empty the Warns most of the time. I think it would be completely fine. Oh, yeah, totally. Maybe they'll put it in a secret lair with a black border. I would love it. <laughs> so, mine is sort of Truth and Justice. That card got to see play for, like, almost zero time. And it was super cool and, and super good. It, it was, like, the sort of card that I was hoping for for years. And then the meta shifted, and things like Oko arrived, and now, like, the protection colors aren't quite right. The ability's still Is that the cool. blue-white one? Yeah. And, like, I would love to be playing that card, but it's it's just not there right now. I, I would love to get to a point again where there's, like, a dominant blue-white control deck and, like, sleeve that sucker up, but I'm not, I'm not hopeful right now. So I know that this isn't incredibly relevant to Legacy, but I price out my decks once a year just so I, I keep an inventory of my collection and what everything's worth. I was pricing out the swords because I have a commander deck that I never play. And in it's a Japanese foil 
uh, Sword of Fire Ice. It's like 350 bucks. Uh, Sword of Feast and Famine, same thing, uh, 200 bucks. Body and Mind, Japanese foil is like twenty dollars. The play di- the playability between Body and Mind and Sword of Feast and Famine is not that much. Like they're pretty similar, and there's definitely some metagames where, in Legacy at least, where Sword of Body and Mind is definitely better than Feast and Famine. And it's just like shocking to me that the price scale is that wide. I think I ran Sword of Body and Mind at GP Louisville a couple years back. When, like, the Reed Duke, like, Leovold deck thing was mm-hmm. popular. Like, that that card's legacy playable. Fringe. Yeah, there was a there. time. Yeah. Yeah, like, every removal spell was Abrupt Decay. Like, it was a good time for Sword of Body and Mind. Swung through True Name Nemesis? Yep, that's that's what it was there for. All right. Sorry to go what off topic. Your... Oh, I mean, that's what this whole podcast is, really. Like, I don't know how we keep the viewers, but... Somehow they managed to stay through all of the the pizza and Netflix. Who doesn't love pizza? All right. <laughs> Next up, what are your sleeper picks for the meta from the Innistrad Revenue Service? Elves is really good right now, like crazy good. Uh, I don't even know if it's a secret or a sleeper, or if people just think that it's a fringe deck. But I do think Elves is genuinely excellent right now. I think the Allosaurus Shepherd decks should be explored more than they are. That card is dumb. For sure. I'm going to copy Brian. I think Elves is just terrific right now. Yeah, I mean, I also think Elves is terrific right now. Um, I don't know if I'd call this a sleeper, but a deck I would like to have more data on is Death Shadow. The card picked up a new Death Shadow effect recently, and I would be interested in seeing if that deck has more legs than it did previously. I've seen it do some cool things in leagues, um, but I I don't have enough data. I don't know that I want to call it a sleeper pick, but that's something I secretly have my eye on. I've gotten parody in Shadow in the last week, and they weren't running the new Shadow, which I thought was pretty interesting. They were still running Gurmags. I don't know. I couldn't tell you if one's better than the other but I know that maybe all the Death Shadow opponents aren't doing their due diligence and testing out new things. Well, the, the new Shadow is... Uh, it it gets uh, minus X minus X based on the highest life total, not your own. Oh. So uh, there, you you have to be ahead for it to even come into play. Um, I, I ha- have a modern league I recorded where my opponent played that card as a 2-2 and I just cast Uro and it died. So, like, the, the, it is not free. Uh, it, it is not just another shadow. It's a very different card. Though, on the flip side, if you team or battle rage that thing, it's twice as big for the second hit as the first one, which I also found out the hard way. That is really awesome. So did I. I love that. <laughs> yeah. I've played team or battle rage in my life. All right. All right. Our next question. Let's, let's keep this thing rolling. <laughs> yeah. Our next question is from Michael Mapson at Expedition Map, who asks for the number one tip for people trying to improve the consistency and quality of their content and or increase their audience. Let's start there, and then there's some other things in this question. Uh, find your niche and hit it hard. Um, your audience will eventually find you. Um, nobody can do everything, and transitions are slow. Like uh, when. When I was like streaming, I built up a legacy following and then uh, 
if like I only had like a little bit of time left, not enough time for a legacy league, I would like jump into a draft or something and everyone would leave like immediately. You would see it happen in real life, in real time on stream. Um, it's hard to transition into another format because that's another audience. Uh, the uh, Then listen to your audience. Even shitty comments might have good advice in them. If someone like tells you you're a terrible player and why are you even here and your fans making a bunch of noise in the background and your quality's bad like okay i i do need to fix those fan issues like yeah you're right <laughs> even if you're a jerk so uh listen uh people always say don't read the comments but i read every comment so do i uh yeah also um whore aggressively on social media just like uh, when I post a video, I, I tweet it. I post it in every Facebook group I'm in. Um, I don't have Reddit, but I probably should if I re- was really taking my own advice. Just make sure people know who you are and where, where they can find you. Make industry contacts. Like, uh, I like I did a collab with Phil. I was on stream with uh, Skybills uh, a little while ago. Um, I've been on other people's podcasts. Like, all of those are worth doing and they help you get that audience crossover and don't be afraid to send that email or DM asking for a shot on a new platform. Like uh, I've sold a number of articles where I just like DM'd Cedric. It's just like, Hey, I wrote uh, 8,000 words about miracles to star city want it. And uh, sometimes it's yes, sometimes it's no, but uh, just shop it around and make sure to like, there, there's nothing special about a content creator other than that they have taken the time to get their stuff out there. Uh, like They're probably, unless it's like LSV, they're probably not any better than you. A lot of content creators really are just normal people like you or me sitting in their house uh, playing a lot of Magic Online. So uh, chase it down, make the effort. That's my advice on that. So... A lot of content creators start off thinking, well, like, I don't have a really nice mic or my webcam is not that good. I don't have a green screen. I don't have this. I don't have that. The technical stuff you can do over time. Like, I have a pretty nice setup now, but I started small. And so do a lot of other players. You don't have to have everything up front other than the drive to want to make the content. Like, that's truly the one thing you actually need. Because, like, one piece of content every month is nice, but you're going to lose return uh, visitors on that. Like, you have to do it somewhat frequently in order to keep people engaged. And this isn't necessarily tied to the question, but marketing is super important. You really do want to share your articles uh, all over the internet, like Brian said. But marketing with other players and networking, like networking, I guess, is more of what I'm trying to say here. But networking, like meeting new people and getting ideas of how they do things and why they do it this way or that way. Like when uh, I started this podcast with Anurag, Anurag gave me a bunch of really good advice for improving the quality of what I was doing. And it probably would have taken me a much longer time had I not discussed things with Anurag. And in return, I gave Anurag some design advice for Anurag stream. So it was a nice back and forth. And you can do that through networking. And networking is also a really good way of just becoming a better magic player. Uh, you want to play with better players. That way you can get more information. So, you know, when you're at an event, say hi to someone that you think might be better than you or, you know, uh, it's pretty simple. Like a lot of magic players aren't assholes. Like if you come up and say hi, they'll be like, hey, um, you know, I'm Bryant. Nice to meet you. How's your day going? Um, that sort of thing. 
Yeah, um, hitting from a slightly different axis. Um, when you're first getting into content creation, keep your mental health in mind from the beginning. Content creation is something that you can bury yourself in and lose yourself in. It's really easy to look at the numbers on your videos and be discouraged. You know, it's crushing if you start up a stream and you have zero or one viewers or something like that. You have to be making the, the content because you want to make it. Figure out what your goals are, figure out how frequently you want to stream, set that schedule, and do it. If there's no one in your stream, don't sit there silent. Talk. Like, practice your skills, do what you're going to do, do it like you were teaching to a whole classroom. And in terms of success, I find thinking about your numbers much better if you think about them in real-life examples. If you have 20 people watching you, you have a classroom. If you have 100 people watching you, that's a, that's a lecture hall. Like, the numbers might not seem all that impressive, but, you know, if your YouTube videos get 500 views, like... That's 500 people who wanted to come and watch your content, and that's really cool at the end of the day. So don't put too much pressure on yourself, don't get caught up in the numbers, make what you want to make, listen to your fans, and try to stay healthy about it, because it, it can be hard when you're first starting. Yeah, uh, that's why I quit streaming. Like I, I realized that my stream schedule, I started three nights a week, I knocked it down to two nights a week, and then I, even then I was like, calling in like sick or tired like one out of every four streams when and i was just doing it two nights a week and i realized that's just not for me so my current youtube channel uh i don't have a schedule sometimes i put out a video a day sometimes i go a week without anything and that's my mental health like you can gauge my mental health based on how much i'm producing on youtube and that's what i've found that is healthy for me and that's more important at the end of the day yeah, if you look at my, like, number of tournaments I entered, I entered, and amount of content I was producing, they line up in very interesting ways. Because it used to be, like, tournaments all the time, and then I started making more content and streaming, and now it's like, geez, can I really put in another eight hours for this event when I'm trying to stream Saturday and Sunday? Like, it's it's hard. All right, we got... I, I'm well known for hating the the weekend challenges on Magic Online because uh, I I play try to play a, a league a day uh, anyway. But all right, let let's keep this moving. Yeah, it's uh, too too real. We... All right, favorite deck you've yeah. ever played? That's another part of this question. Uh, mine is the uh, Urza control deck that I played. Uh, I won GP Columbus with it. Uh, obviously, winning makes it, the memory all that much sweeter. But uh. I played that deck at the Star City Invitational the week before the GP. Uh, I missed top 16 on Breakers, uh, good for a cool $1,000. Then I won the GP, so I made about ten grand in a week playing that deck. And then they banned three cards out of it after I won the GP. So that, that deck was like smooth, sexy butter, and I would just lather myself up in it and roll around if I could. Mine so... is very easily blue-white-red Splinter Twin. Like, having a Deceiver Exarch on board and a Wall of Omens on board, looking your opponent with open mana in the eyes, and then putting Splinter Twin on the Wall of Omens, it's everything I've ever wanted. <laughs> uh, mine's pretty that deck obviously... so interactive. Uh, the Epic Storm. 
I mean, it, I've played the deck forever, but I've played a lot of Magic over the years. Like, I have a lot of, like, favorite decks from certain periods of my life. Like, when I was young and starting out and playing a lot of Standard, I used to love the Standard KCI deck. Like, that deck was, it was amazing. And playing it was a ton of fun. I thought about that deck when I went to bed at night, like, how I could get better at playing KCI and Standard. Uh, I loved the blue, the blue-white Delver deck in Standard. I played so much of that deck that I was playing like four standard events, uh, like locals during the week. So I think it's okay to love different decks at different points in your life. All right. Um, should we call some of the questions at this point to kind of keep things moving? Yeah, I'm going to skip a couple sections of this one, but we do need to know who our favorite Ninja Turtles are. Um. Mine, I think, is an easy Donatello with Mikey and Leo tied for a distant second and then Raphael far in the back. I'm really not liking that I'm behind Brian for all these fucking questions. Uh, <laughs> Donatello is also my favorite and Raphael's the least favorite. I don't like this. Well, Michael, uh, if Michael you actually filled in your show dude. notes, I would know that. Yeah, I, I don't have strong opinions on the Ninja Turtles. Like, I remember I remember the song, I had Ninja Turtle action figures, but I haven't watched a Ninja Turtle thing in, like, 18-plus years, so IDK. All right, let's keep rolling. All right, this is a very good question. Uh, the, the person who asked it requested to remain anonymous, which I think is really funny. Uh, in Season 6, Episode 6 of Futurama, Accountant Hermes Conrad swallows a calculator to gain its powers... What would you eat to get better at your job? Um, I would dig up the dusty old bones of B.F. Skinner and just become a genius of behavior analysis. Uh, I'm just not going to answer this, Phil. Uh, I would have to eat like some archaic tome um, for Latin based reasons, I'm sure. But I would be worried about summoning demons afterwards. I've seen enough TV shows to know where that sort of thing goes. Yeah, that's guaranteed. Right. All right. Uh, Tra- Travis Hilly asks, how good is Blood Moon and Vintage right now? Um, I'm going to say not very. Uh, it costs three and everyone has Moxin. So like three mana in Vintage is Tinker. <laughs> like casting Blood Moon. There will be games where Blood Moon wins. Um, a couple years ago at Eternal Weekend, a uh, budget mono red Moon Stompy deck emerged. That was pretty viable. I played against one undefeated in round five. So like it clearly had legs, but uh, like, what what are you shutting down? Like, Bazaar is probably the best thing to turn into a mountain, and those decks produce 12 power on turn one. So, good luck with your three drop. Yeah, I did watch a video of a vintage stalwart Justin Ganari getting absolutely hosed by a Blood Moon while he was playing Hogak. So, you can maybe uh, maybe steal some games here and there, but I don't think you should expecting... You should expect Blood Moon to be the powerhouse. I, I was about to say that it is in Legacy, but even in Legacy, it's a little sketch right now. Yeah. All right, next question. It's another one from Rain Vorland. Uh, what is your favorite basic land? So of the three basic lands, I think Cold Snap has the best art, but I like the Ice Age aesthetic the best. <laughs> uh, I have one of each Invasion basic I used because it was the first set that I played. I really like the Odyssey Lightning Planes. That's what I use in my Death and Taxes deck. Um, as far as newer lands go, I really like the Phyrexian Swamp from Jumpstart. Like, having your swamps having Phyrexian language on them is super cool. I'm into that. 
I haven't Holy seen shit. the card in person though. We still have so many questions. <laughs> yeah, we're we're trying to move it along <laughs> past here. Yep. All right. What effect will a return to paper have on the legacy metagame? I'm going to sum up our answers here. Essentially, we think it's none or very little. Yeah, uh, Magic Online has always set the pace for the legacy technology. Uh, when Star City was having a weekly open, maybe that was a different time, but uh, people are going to play what they own in paper. The format's a lot harder to switch decks, uh, and like there's just fewer tournaments, so basically none. All right, next question. How good is everyone at pickup basketball? I'm good Not at defending. Not. I can't shoot. So this is actually in my uh, Star City player card, like when they're running coverage and like my stats come up. Like one of my uh, fun things is always down for pickup basketball, which I assume where is where this question came from. And I'm pretty mediocre, uh, but I am enthusiastic enough. Um, I... I definitely have gone to war. I've made enemies uh, on the playground as an adult with with other grown men over uh, going hard to the hoop. (laughs) All right. From Kai, what is the most elegant way to tap slash manipulate paper cards? How do you arrange your cards on the battlefield and shuffle your library? Uh, So I, I noticed that somewhere along the way, I tap my lands 45 degrees to the left, but I tap my creatures 90 degrees to the right which I, I don't know why I did that or where it came from, but I do it and it's completely subconscious. Um, and I shuffle exactly enough. Uh, like, so it's random and not one second more. Like I want my deck to be random, but I don't want to waste time in the match. And I always give my opponent's deck a couple overhand shuffles. A cut is not enough. And I'm wondering if COVID is going to change my behavior moving forward. I am very conscious about my opponent seeing my deck when I shuffle. So I shuffle with my head like almost like over the table with the deck off to the side and back sideways. So there's zero chance that they could ever see anything. Uh, but have you ever noticed how whenever you face a new player at like an FNM or something, you can always tell that they're new just based on their mannerisms. Like when you've been playing magic a long time, you see how people with confidence tap their cards. But like people that are new tend to like fidget a little bit more. Just an observation. Yeah, like, I I, I don't want to be ableist because I imagine there are people whose uh, hands don't work uh, quite the way that ours do. But yes, you can generally tell by how someone handles cards. Like, can they fan out a seven card hand in one hand and then, like, take actions with their other hand? Or are they, like, holding it in two hands like they're playing solitaire with their grandma? Like, there's, uh, th- there are tells that you can usually see if someone is new to physically handling paper cards or not. Yeah. Play with confidence. I have so many anecdotes about how I am 100% dead on board, and then I just, like, pass. My opponent says, go to combat, and I, like, think, wait, it's like, like, read one of the cards. Yes. Okay, that's fine. And then they go, like, wait, what's what's going on? Why Why did you check that? Like, if you play with confidence, like, you can turn a lot of, like, no no situations where you don't have anything into a more confident situation. There's an awesome story about, I think it was Julian playing against a Death and Taxes player. Julian has Natural Order in hand and the mana to cast it, but this Death and Taxes player has ta- has passed for like three turns in a row with two white mana up and always one card in hand. It was a Plains. It was not a Containment Priest. Yep, that's beautiful stuff. Uh, there, Yeah, uh, 
I feel like I could talk for 15 minutes on just uh, Jedi mind tricks and sort of things you can do with the physical positioning of your cards, but we don't have 15 minutes now. All right. Um, question from Charles Bobinger. Are there any matches matchups in Vintage or Legacy that are much better or worse than people seem to think they are? So that depends on the people. Uh, I think the format hive minds are pretty good at knowing what's favored where. But if you're trying to come into Legacy or Vintage from Modern or uh, Pioneer, you might miss how great Death and Taxes is against Sneak and Show, or how great the Epic Storm is against Force of Will decks. Like that sort of thing might not be apparent to you right away. Um, I want to share something that I found on Jarvis's Twitter today. Um, he was talking about hard MTG lessons that he learned, and he learned this one from Jason Ford. Don't focus on good or bad matchups. Focus on how you're able to win or lose. I think that's a rather good philosophy, and it has hidden implications. There's a, there's, there's a, a nice nugget of wisdom for future thought. Yeah, that's something that I tell people when they come to me. They're like, what do you think of this card in this deck? And a lot of the time I'll ask them, what does the game state look like when you're winning? Like, what does the last turn of the game look like when, before your opponent concedes in your mind? And if this card doesn't help you get there, then it's probably not what you want. All right. Uh, our next question is from Jordan, who asks, what's your holy grail in magic? Physical collection, trophies, titles, something else? Uh, so, uh, I guess this is kind of a humble brag, but like, I have a pretty dope collection. I have trophies and I have titles. And uh, I, I still want more of all those things. But becoming a household name and content creation is uh, currently my white whale. Like, that's that's my next big one. Yeah, mine mine is similar. I would I would like to become a premier premier content creator without like selling out or abandoning my principles. Like I know there are certain things that I could do to increase my viewership greatly, but I'd like to still making I'd I'd like to still make the content that I want to be making without just selling out. Like the other two, I have a pretty nice paper collection. I show it off once a year with my deck showcases. Uh, I'm pretty happy with the Epic Storm and how much it's grown. Like the website is truly phenomenal. Uh, the writers are a great team and they do a lot. And I have trophies, but honestly, my goals right now are just more success playing before that changes. Brian mentioned it last episode, but uh, kids are on the horizon for me. I mean, we're not currently expecting i hope i don't know but like they need to happen within the next few years and my life is going to change after that so like i want to accomplish some of my long-term magicals in the next few years before that reality starts to ship all right brian and on that note tarmogoyf or fleet wheel cruiser in vintage if i had to pick one cruiser That's but right. honestly yep, like i don't want to play either Fleet Wheel Cruiser. <laughs> that, that's what, that's the point of the question. <laughs> All right, you heard it here. Bryant wants to play Fleet Wheel Cruiser in Vintage. Perfect. All right, next up from Harper. As someone just getting into Legacy on MTGO, should I specialize on one type of deck first or rent everything and get a feel for the format? Um, rent. This kind of hits on things that we said earlier in the episode, where being a specialist is great, but the wider range of knowledge and experience you have, the better. Yeah, you'll find a lane if you just... Uh, the rental services are great for this, uh, removing the financial uh, barriers to just playing every deck. 
Uh, just try everything, get a feel for everything, and eventually you'll find something you like and you'll sort of settle into a, a preferred lane. And uh, I, you should find it that way. All right. And I suppose for our final question that we're going to get into here, from R. Schiller 20, would you rather fight 50 one-foot goblins or one foot or one 50-foot goblin? Uh, well, we're in luck because Muxus makes it so we no longer have to choose. He is a 50-foot goblin who brings 51-foot goblins with him. <laughs> That's a good answer. Yeah, I, I, I don't think we can uh, end on a much higher note than that. All right, gentlemen, you have anything you want to say to cap off the episode? Thank you for your uh, submissions. I, I just want to... Yeah, thanks everyone for your questions. Uh, sorry if we missed them. And uh, co-hosts, I think we did a good job just closing off in, in the two-hour cap. I thought this was going to be like two and a half, three hours when I looked <laughs> like halfway through our question list. I was like, oh God, we're going to be here all night. No, no. We, we, have, we trimmed we have some. To do. Like there's a lot that we allowed. Yeah, we cut a couple on the fly, but yeah, I think we we hit all the important ones. Other than right, why do have... I look like the singer of the Mighty Mighty Boston's? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was just that one image. Like I've seen that guy before, and I, it's never occurred to me that he looks like you. Yeah, I don't think I look like them, but sure. Uh, all yeah. right, folks. We hope <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Eternal Glory podcast. We'll be back next week with a maybe more coherent episode, but hopefully, you enjoyed this mailbag episode, nevertheless. Yeah.